Hello and welcome again to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name is Jason Barnard. That was the Kinks and Do It Again from their excellent word of mouth album from 1985. I've got the great pleasure to welcome Kinks drummer, roulette sergeant and, and much more Bob Henry here today. Welcome, Bob. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure and it's a, a great time to cover many of the tracks that you've played on over 50, 55 years or maybe even more now. And also you have an excellent autobiography out banging on, which would uh, be good to touch on as we go. I wanted to start off with Do It Again because that's a song that for some Ray Davis was reflecting on touring and tour life. And I, I guess that was uh, something that you'd done quite a lot over the years. Yeah, uh, the, the thing about being a musician is if you don't like touring, then you're in the wrong game, without a doubt. I love touring, uh, and I write about it constantly, rather than look than going to sleep on the bus or in the whatever. I look out of the window to see what's there. When I was with Don McLean, we would be going through America, so we'd find ourselves in Wyoming. There would be a, a horizon at the front of the bus, a horizon at the back of the bus, and horizons to the left and right of the bus. And there was nothing there. But I knew there was nothing there, but it still didn't stop me looking. I've scribbled down all of this stuff <clears throat> over the years simply because I should. Uh, and, uh, and I will talk to, to my mates from bands and they won't remember it because they didn't scribble it down. So it's a bit of a revelation to them. I realized that that wasn't your question. But back to the point, I've been doing it for 58 years. But of course, I was doing it before that. I didn't wake up one day and was in the roulettes and could play the drums, of course. You know, there was a, a long build up to that to do with being in skiffle groups and all, all of those things that uh, got us all started. And that's a great segue into the next track, which we, we go back to the sort of early part of your time with Adam Faith and you were part of the roulettes. But that was a, a group that that was formed specifically to back Adam. Did you join a, a little later on after the roulettes had been formed? Is that Yeah, they, they were formed maybe a year before I joined. I was offered the gig and I grabbed it with both hands. And interestingly enough, my parents were, or my mother was a teacher and I never expected to get away with joining a rock and roll band. Uh, I, I left the, the sixth form to become a rock and roller. I mean, it's just... My kids would never get away with that. Well, it's too late for them, but they would never have got away with it. You know, they would have to finish school and do all the things that uh, kids have to do. I was very fortunate that they actually let me do it. And the next thing I knew, I was on the road with Adam Faith going up and down. We had one motorway in those days, rushing up and down motorways to do weeks in variety. And uh, do you know what variety was? Yeah, well, you had a bit of a mixed package, uh, comedians and variety, different types of singers. And, and... dog acts and trick cyclists. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was crazy. But um, everybody came, of course, to see the, the main star, who was Adam Faith. And we were backing him, although we had our own, uh, our own little show to do before he came on. So that was my, my learning curve, really. And I was learning to be in showbiz. It, it was, of course, we, were, we wanted to be a rock and roll band, and we were, but we didn't just play rock and roll. We had a program to do every week for Radio Luxembourg, and it was an hour, and we had to play songs for an hour, and it would be broadcast on the following Sunday, and that was what we did. So we couldn't just play 
rock and roll stuff. We couldn't just do um, Walk in the Dog and all that sort of thing. We had to do instrumentals. We had to back Adam Faith with, with songs that we were surprised that he wanted to sing. So um, it was, um, I mean, it was a great beginning. And in those days we would do, I know you haven't asked this, but in those days we'd do, we'd wake up and we'd do a, uh, a recording session and then we'd go and do a TV program in the afternoon. And then in the evening we'd go off and we'd become um, variety artists and we'd be in the theater. And that went on for several years, five years to be precise. And we had a wonderful time and we learned the game really, because of course in those days, rock and roll was in its infancy. We were, we were a couple of years ahead of the Beatles. The Beatles weren't around when we started, or if they were, they were in, um, uh, in Germany. They weren't doing what we were doing. And I'm, I'm not boasting about this, but we began earlier. Of course, there were people who began earlier than us. But it was, pre it was pretty much a, a baptism that happened in, in the 60s, the very early 60s. As well as touring, you backed Adam on uh, many of his hits, like the first time. Yeah, we did, all the, we did all the songs and, of course, we could rock. So uh, there, there was nothing new to us when, when, the, uh, when the Mersey Beat thing hit. You know, we, we did that. We did the, everybody did the same songs. So pretty much the songs that the Beatles were doing in Hamburg, people in England were doing as well. They, that's what we did. Every time that we meet street but I want her to stay Is it love? I don't know that you feel. I don't know Is it love? I don't know Is it real? I don't know whoa, whoa. Cause it's the first time I felt this way Her eyes are so blue And oh how they shine What can And say sweet words to me If dreams come true Like some folks do Then what will the answer be? But when will I know? How long must I wait? When will it show? What is my fate? In the Relax, you also released your own material, as in your own artist, like the single The Long Cigarette, yeah. quite a string of, of singles that you released in the early to mid-60s as well. Yeah, we EMI would phone up and say, it's time for a new record. And we would say, okay. And they would, the next question would be, have you got anything? Well, this would be pretty much 
before groups wrote their own songs. And you notice I just said groups. We weren't bands, we were groups. And we were groups because bands were, if you, if you thought of the, the word, were the sort of people who played for dancing at dance halls. Well, we weren't doing that. We were doing rock and roll. We did everything that, that we could, and we were pretty diverse. We did, uh, as you saw in the book, we did um, summer seasons, and we did pantomimes. So uh, we did all of that, and of course we, we toured the world. How cool was that? My first flight and my first journey out of, uh, out of England was to New Zealand. And so the first plane I went on was a 707, going first of all to all the stops that would get you to uh, Australia. And then we eventually we arrived in, uh, in New Zealand 45 hours after we left London. And we stopped everywhere to fill up. It was crazy. <laughs> so all of those things are a part of the, what I'm interested in and what, what interested me even, in, even more. I mean, who'd have thought that I'd be getting on a plane to New Zealand? I mean, the way to get to New Zealand and Australia in 1962 was um, to get on a boat, pay, a fi pay five pounds and settle in, in the Antipodes. That's what you did. <laughs> Believe it or not, we were... We were sitting on the plane and it was sort of droning in the direction of New Zealand. One of, one of the, the pilots came back to where we were with a stool and a sextant. And he pulled back a, uh, a thing in the roof, you know, a binnacle in the roof and pointed at the stars. If we hadn't, well, we would never have known where we were going without the stars. He didn't have any uh, stations sending up uh, information to us saying where we were. So you had to have the sextant. Incredible. One of the threads in your career and one of the, the artists that you've worked extensively with is Russ Ballard. Yeah, we, well, we grew up together. I'm a, I'm a year older than Russell. We grew up together and we were in semi-professional bands together. We weren't in a skiffle group because skiffle had, we'd moved on from skiffle. I had abandoned the washboard and was now playing proper drum kit, which happened to belong to Russ Ballard's dad, who loaned it to me. And that, so it was a proper drum kit rather than, uh, I mean, I had once had, we used to call them bits of this and bits of that. Nothing ever matched, but they, but they made a drummy type sound. And we would, uh, in, 90, in the 50s, we wouldn't have known a good sound from a bad sound. Interestingly enough, I don't want to denigrate anybody, neither would the guy selling us the drum kit. You know, these days it's all about maple and, and birch and, and brass and all that sort of thing. And the, and the warm sound and the all that sort of thing well we never had that and uh, certainly the guy selling it was trying to sell it to us so he would he would talk about all its um all of its attributes its good attributes without really giving the game away that he actually didn't know what he was really talking about because nobody nobody cared you know we just wanted a drum kit those were the days of going to the high street and seeing a music shop that had a snare drum and a microphone in the window and we would ogle these and then get back on the trolley bus and go home. So that I'm, but it's interesting, really, because like you, I've spoken to an awful lot of drummers, and we all we all came from the same place. You know, we all had the same the same interests, the same problems, the same lack of money for for a drum kit. I mean, if we were fortunate, our parents would would dig dig in and and give us a few pounds, and the rest of the money would come from our paper rounds. And interestingly enough, uh, when I played with Don McLean, I played with Don for a couple of years in America. My first thing to him was, 
but I learned that Buddy Holly was dead when I was delivering my newspapers. And he looked at me sort of strangely because nobody knew you weren't supposed to know that, but I always assumed that February makes me shiver with every paper I deliver. Bad news on the doorstep. I mentioned this to him and I thought, is he? And he became interested. And I thought, is he going to tell me the secret of American Pie? And the answer was no. cigarette drops I can't figure it what's taking baby so long she's missed her bus maybe caught in the rush or perhaps my directions were wrong it's almost time boy drink up your wine boy I'm smoking a long cigarette I'm hoping my baby will come along yet tonight you'll be think your playing evolved through the 60s because when you look at a track like concrete and clay it's got a bit more of that bossa nova feel more of an inventive sound yeah well bossa nova without a doubt didn't belong on that record but it just happened that i had i mean because it was very fast and you've never i don't believe anybody's ever heard a fast bossa nova unless they listen to concrete and clay which has a very fast bossa nova on it I used to get Downbeat, which was a, an American magazine, which came into England very sporadically. And if I saw it, I would buy it, mostly for the adverts about drums and guitars and all that sort of thing. 
And I bought it one month and it had the music for a bossa nova. It was one of it was a, certainly a Brazilian bossa nova and it could have been Jobim. I don't know who who it really who it was. And I learned the bossa nova from the music that they published. And that happened to coincide with doing concrete and clay. And I thought, hey, maybe I can play this. And so the chorus has a bossa nova in it. The rest of it is, th these are words that I haven't heard, thought about for years, but bomch, ba bomch, bomch, that's a bion. A bion and a bion goes bom, ba bom. So we could very easily tell each other which feel, me and the bass player could tell each other which feel we were going to play. And we would be on the same, uh, on the same page, which was just as, just as well, really, because when I was with Ray Davies in, in the Kinks, Ray would just launch into a song without really being aware that I hadn't been there for that song because I, I certainly I wasn't there. So I was there for a long time, but not, and I, I couldn't have learned the canon of bass Jim Rodford and I would look at one another and we, we'd go into it. Ray was very much into pushing the envelope. And so if there were 100,000 people in the audience, which there sometimes were, he would be um, writing a song for them. And we would be backing him without having any idea. He would turn around and show, show Jim what the key was. So he'd show him the, the key uh, and his fingers on the guitar. And uh, I would look at Jim and we would, Jim would wait for a, an obvious fill from me and we'd be in. And a, a song would be born. And one of the songs was called uh, Regatta My Ass." We were doing this 100,000 people type thing in Cincinnati down by the waterfront. And it was a regatta. And Ray decided he was going to write a song for them then and there. So we did. Interestingly enough, Don McLean would happily just launch into a song, assuming that I knew it. Well, because of my background, the Adam Faith background we mentioned, I would. You know, I mean, he would go down, and we, I would know that he was, um, he was playing Baby, I Don't Care. But he hadn't mentioned it. And there we are, we're playing it. So that sort of... That sort of music is, is really, really interesting that you don't know what's coming next. And Ray was really good at it, at, you know, keeping us on our toes. I once made the mistake of telling him that Glenn Miller would put different beginnings on, on every song and different outros on every song so that the guys didn't get stale. So they had to look at, you know, they had to look at the music to make sure that they knew there was a new, another way of getting into the song and there it was so I made the mistake of telling Ray and Ray of course thought that was a great idea and did it a lot I always say that the, the Kinks was not a drunken person's gig it couldn't be you had to keep up with Ray cheers cheers so um I guess the, the thread there is just being flexible and being willing to go with it so going back to unit four plus two were you and Russ the plus two? Yes, we then? were. Unit four, yeah, we just made did the session. Unit four were guys who I had gone to school with. They were a folk group. So they did a lot of folk songs and they did a lot of close harmony things like the Letterman and those sort of bands that were very cleverly put together. They were never a rock and roll group at all. And they, they asked Russell and I to play on the record, so we did. We turned up and we, we had an idea of what well, we just... I did my bossa nova and, uh, and Russ did his thing. And, and that, was, that was the story. Certainly the guy who wrote the song was expecting it to be like the Drifters, as in you to me, ah, you know, sort of Cliff Richard type thing. And, and it wasn't. And I, I think we're, 
I think the world has agreed that if it had been left like a, a drifter's song, it wouldn't have been successful. And it sold a great many uh, records. And I, as it says in the book, we got five pounds, 15 shillings and sixpence. So that was what the music industry was about. And we would, we would be offered a session and we'd turn up and nobody, and nobody ever said in those days, would you like a piece of the action or do you want five pounds, 15 shillings and sixpence? And I rather think if they had, we'd have said, oh, give us the five pounds, 15 shillings and sixpence. And of course, the, the way it all worked out, uh, concrete and clay, for example, sold millions. But that's what we, that was the business. That's what we were in. And that's what we did. And that's what we knew. You to me are sweet as roses in the morning. And you to me are soft as summer rain at dawn. In lovely shade, that's something rare. The sidewalks in the street. The concrete and the clay beneath my feet begins to crumble. But love will never die because we'll see the mountains tumble before we say goodbye. My love and I will be in love eternally. That's the way, that's the way it's meant to be. All around, I see the purple shades of evening. And on the ground, shadows fall. Once again you're in my arms So tenderly The sidewalks in the street The concrete and the clay Beneath my feet Begins to crumble But love will never die Because we'll see the mountains crumble Before we say goodbye My love and I Continued to, to back Adam Faith in towards the sort of mid to late 60s. And there's a great, great track of his, Cowman, Milk Your Cow, which was written by the Bee Gees. Obviously, you were on that, but I've read that the great late Peter Green was on that track. Is that true? I actually, I've got to admit, I don't know. I could lie and do all that stuff. Oh, actually, the phrase is, if I'm honest, I don't, I don't know. But um, I met Peter Green. We were making a film. And Peter happened to be in the vicinity of where we were talking to another drummer. It was Cozy Powell. And Peter came over and started chatting to us. And Peter was a very, very nice chap, very, uh, very laid back and very gentle, really. He came over and started talking about Jet Harris and Tony Meehan and about the roulettes. And I thought, how does he know this? Is this guy's the greatest blues player there's ever been or the greatest white blues player, if, if, that, if we can say that? Uh, R.I.P., of course, because he's not long gone, is he? I don't know. John McLaughlin, 
played on an Adam Faith track. He played rhythm guitar. I played drums. Russ Ballard played guitar. Uh, and John, I mean, it's just ridiculous, but that was what happened. Ike Isaacs, I don't suppose you've ever heard of Ike Isaacs, but he was a great jazz guitarist in the 50s. He played on La Bamba, and he was in the studio to, to show us the ropes, really. And I don't know if you've ever heard of La Bamba. It was the first Roulette's uh, track, but Ike Isaacs played on it. The A&R guys at EMI would say, have you got anything to record? It's time for a new single. And we would say, no. Uh, they say, we'll get you something. And they'd send around a few demos, which were on acetates by people like Neil Sedaka. Oh, no, they, they would say, when, have you got anything? Because we've got a session booked on a particular date. So we would turn up at EMI. And interestingly enough, we, we assumed all sessions started at half past nine, but they started at nine. So we were all out, all out roulette's life at EMI. We were half an hour late. <laughs> and nobody, nobody told us. <laughs> But those were the days when you would walk into the Hollies. The Hollies would be in the studio as well. And the Beatles might or might not be there. Uh, although the Beatles tended to have, the, there was a studio which they used and which we used when they weren't using it. It was a fabulous time and we've lived it. And I'm scribbling it all down so that the information doesn't become lost and doesn't become part of Chinese whispers. Because there are people out there who know far more about me than I do, but what they know about me is wrong. So, so it's, a, it's, very, it's, a, it's been a very interesting time. And the reason for writing an autobiography was to tell the kids, my kids, where I'd been, because they just knew their dad wasn't there. Yeah, I don't know if I told you, there are three books ready to, ready to come out. One, two of them are travelogues, so I'm not sure how they finish. How do you finish a travelogue? Uh, and there's a new, new drum book coming out about, about everything to do with drums from when I began in the mid-50s. But um, one of them is, I, I don't know if I told you, one of them is called On the Road Again. So that's about everything that ever happened to us uh, with the Kinks, with, the, uh, with Argent, with uh, Don McLean, with everybody I've ever played with. And there's another one called Have You Come Far? And that's about being on, on the road with my wife and the family of which I've done a great deal. Uh, as things slowed down uh, with, with groups, I, I began to do more traveling with my wife. Have you come far is, believe it or not, what the queen says to you when you meet her in the street. She looks at you and smiles and says, have you come far? And by the time you've got your wits together to say, no, I only live around the corner, uh, ma'am, uh, she's gone and she's talking to the guy next to you and saying, have you come far?
Richard Anthony, or Richard Anthony, if, you, if you're French. And we toured France with him for quite some time, and he had a plane. So we were getting into this Piper Aztec every morning, where everybody else, you know, normal bands would be getting into a van. So we were getting into a van with wings, really. And we, we flew all over, all over Europe with him. That was great because he, he, was, very, he was a very clever chap. He would get a song that was number one in England or number one in America and write his own words to it. And so those words would invariably have nothing whatsoever to do with the original. So, for example, You're Out of Time, uh, which we, we did with him. But that's, um, that's a good, uh, they're really good lyrics that the Stones have done. Really good. I mean, possibly their best ones. And uh, the sentiment and everything. And Richard took it. It was baby, 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 je pense à toi, which means baby, I think of you, which isn't really, you're out of time. But he had a great deal of success. So uh, unfortunately, he has also shuffled off this mortal coil. Uh, so that work with Richard Anthony kept you going into the late 60s. You were on the sort of post-Odyssey and Oracle era. Yeah. Zombies. And it's that great track which was released as a single in the United States, Imagine the Swan. Yes. What was the sort of circumstances around uh, playing on that? What it was, we were the new zombies, if we were anything, uh, but we knew we didn't want to be called the zombies. Rod, we were, we were doing a gig in Basildon, and uh, I looked out into the audience, this was with Unit 4 Plus 2, and looked into the audience, and I thought, that looks like Rod Argent in the audience, and isn't that Chris White with him? So anyway, at the end, uh, they came over, and it was them. And they said, we're having a new band. Do you want to be in it? They said, come and listen to the songs. So I came and listened to the songs, which were all of the Imagine the Swan sort of uh, ilk. I thought, these are great. This is fabulous. Yes, count me in. And uh, they wanted Russell as well. So uh, we were both in it. And off we went. Uh, But the, the interesting thing is that at the time, the zombies who had just packed up had had a hit with Odyssey and Oracle. And uh, the record company wanted to... wanted more records. So since uh, the zombies had packed up, we became, if you like, the new zombies. And that was Imagine the Swan. And of course, we played all, all those songs like, like Time of the Season, which were from that era. 
we then next thing we were we were Argent and we were pretty much on on the road. Well, I have a picture in colour of you, and it's there in. Argent seems to be a band where working with Russell, Jim Rodford, Rod Argent, and entered a, a new phase, enjoyed success with, with tracks like Hold Your Head Up. Um, seemed to be a bit of a tension with the record company that wanted to trim everything down for singles. Or as in... Well, quite rightly so, of course. I mean, the thing is, um, when they trimmed it down, it was a hit. I mean, so who's right? I mean, we, we had the, we had the, um, the album version, but... Uh, nobody plays, or at the time, nobody play a record that long. Well, they did, but they weren't happy about doing it. And although the Yes were making records that long as well, but as soon as you chop them down, then people they would get played and people would hear them. The, I mean, three minutes is supposed to be, or it was then, as long as the record was supposed to be to get 
to get plays. All, a lot of these songs came out of something that we did before we went to America. And we went to a club in Germany to get the band together, as they used to say. And so we would play nine 45-minute spots a night, which is like working down the, the coal mine, only worse. I mean, it's just... Now, if you don't like that, I spoke to Cozy Powell about this. He, he said, you're definitely not in the right game. You, if you can't do nine 45-minute spots a night playing and enjoying yourself, then you're never going to go into a studio and play for 12 hours and, and, and like it. There was a, an Argent track there were 51 takes of that I played better on the first two. Because as, as it, I mean, this is, this is the drummer's thing, you know, you play better when you're, you're a bit more anxious and you're not too sure what the heck's going on. So we would do nine 45 minute spots a night. And the first spot when there were very few people in, in the audience, in the club, we would start off with dimples, sort of a two-four. And, and then after a while, I would look at Jim and I would, we would, I would go into something different. It might, might be 12-8, it might be, uh, it might be some sort of four on the floor thing, but we would go, or it might be, it could be anything that we wanted to play at that moment. And that would go on. And at the end of, of the 45 minutes, we would, I would drag it back to, to dimples. So we, and we would have played 45 minutes. And from that, uh, there just happened to be this thing one day where we were, we were playing dimples in a completely different version of it. And I started playing don't, 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 and Jim picked it up and we went from there. Interestingly enough, poor, dear old Jim is gone now, but he and I, I would call him up and ask him a question. And he'd say, that's not right. And one of the questions I asked him uh, was about hold your head up. Where did we get that one together? And he said he was completely different to me in the whole thing. And the thing that I think this is why bands or groups rather can't make, there's never been, if there has, I've never seen it, a collective book by a band because everybody has a slightly different view of the same, of the same incident. And I, I phoned Jim up. Oh, I was sitting in at home. We had done our 50th anniversary gig and I was the only one up and I was sitting at the table and I thought, I wonder how many gigs I've done. So I, I got out a calculator and I stopped at 20,000. And I said to Jim the, the next day, I said, you know what, Jim? I, I reckon we played 20,000. I said, I got the calculator. He said, no. And so Jim was very, very obvious. He said, certainly not, but uh, I think we did. And uh, because we used to do certainly nine 45 minute spots, you count that as, you know, for a couple of weeks, that's a lot of gigs. And then rushing around the world and then being with Adam Faith, where there was a there was a recording session followed by a TV program followed by a gig, so that was three a day for five years, and we never did anything silly like having days off. That was crazy. Nobody did that.
How did you get involved with Leo Sayer? Uh, you were on his first album, Silver Bird, and that had the great hit, The Show Must Go On. Again, uh, All right. quite an interesting sound, record sound there. Yeah, um, that's the one with the... It's got a banjo on it, hasn't it? Yeah. And uh, we didn't have a banjo. We were in Roger Daughtry's studio in Deepest Sussex. I can't... I'm, I'm not I'm not giving away where it is, because I can't remember, but it's in Deepest Sussex. And Roger said this would be really good with a, a, a banjo on it. And we said, we haven't got one. Maybe we'll bring one tomorrow. And so he, uh, he said, no, there's one hanging on the wall in the pub. <laughs> <laughs> Roger went down and borrowed the, uh, the banjo. So um, the, the key to all of that was Adam Faith. Again, the, the, these are wheels within wheels. And he had met this guy called Leo. Well, he had met Leo Sayer, who wasn't called Leo Sayer. And he had, there was a sort of a small gang of people in Brighton. It turned out that a lot of songs had been written and Leo had written a few himself and there was a record contract available. So we went off and did, uh, the, the guy's name was Courtney. You couldn't stop him writing songs. He was a bit, but anyway, we went down to, re, to record and we did Leo's album and then we did and then Roger liked what was going on. He kept wandering into the studio, which was in his barn. And he liked what was going on. And he said, uh, I'd like to do an album. So he duly did one. And off, off we went with another album.
outside my dress Far away from this masquerade Ian Matthews. I got a phone call from somebody I didn't know from Brick Dust and said, uh, there's this guy called Ian Matthews. I said, what, Southern Comfort, um, Ian Matthews? And he said, yeah. He said, he's doing a tour. Would you like to play with him? I said, yeah, of course. So this was when, when Ian was living in Seattle and the whole grunge thing was um, sort of exploding from Seattle. Uh, and uh, Ian, who was it nothing up until then if he wasn't a folk singer was doing these songs that were ostensibly grunge songs so we uh, i turned up and we did we toured and uh, we we did lots we did i think we did three albums or two albums and that was a because it really was like garage music you know it, it really was absolutely fabulous string to my bow as it were that i played with uh, with ian who every now and again gets in touch with me. We had, a, there was a lot of fun to be had with that, as bands do.
You've talked about um, all the different artists that you played with and, and different styles and Leah Sayer, Roger Daltrey, Ian Matthews, and also Don McLean. We're playing a live version of American Pie and you've talked about that touring with Don. What was he like as a sort of person to travel and play with? Well, he was he was a very interesting guy and he hadn't he hadn't been in a band. So all of a all of a sudden he had a band who were like brothers. So he and he he was he didn't come from a big family. He was the only child. So all of a sudden he's got these special these weird people, one of one of which is English and the rest are American. Garth Hudson was the keyboard player. Well, I say he was the keyboard player. He played whatever was necessary. So he played accordion, he played sax, he played anything he wanted. And Don would often catch him out and he would always wander down to the front of the stage with Garth and he'd um, play his solo. And often Don would go into, he'd be at the front of the stage ready to, to do the song and, and, and Don would do another song. And it didn't phase Garth, he just did it. He, he just played it on another instrument. He was very, very musical. And the way he got the gig in the band was because uh, he told his parents, who were not like my parents, they, they weren't happy about it. He told his parents that he was teaching them how to play. And, uh, and that was that. So he then set off around the world, uh, like most of us did. And uh, certainly they were, they were one of my favorite bands. And then there's, a, there's something where um, Ringo plays uh, The Weight. And it's one of those things where he, the, his drum track is constant, but they keep dropping other people in, you know, like, like a Zoom. And uh, that's The Weight, and it's, it's fabulous. It's really, I mean, R Ringo has had a certain amount of bad press, but only from people who don't know. I mean, <clears throat> Ringo is the man, there's no doubt about it. I did, I, did, I did an album with Ringo, which was a bit of a, another surprise. Russ Ballard um, had written an album for Ringo, and we decided to go to, uh, to Copenhagen to make it, to, to, to record it. And Chaz Hodges was on it, John Verity was on it, and it was great fun to make, really great fun. And Ringo is a, a jolly nice chap, you know, and uh, he... Um, when you're in, you get to call him Richie, a thoroughly nice chap. And he really, really liked to sit down with Chaz Hodges and play. He would play drums and Chaz would play all the songs that uh, Ringo wanted to sing, you know, like Red Sails in the Sunset and those sort of great songs. And uh, just sitting there while not playing the drums, but just listening to what's going on was, <clears throat> was an education. I was going to say Feast and Famine. But there wasn't feast and famine. There was never any famine. It was feast. That's what we did. You know, hey, do you want to do a, uh, do you want to do a, uh, an American tour? Oh, okay. So I mean, that was Don McLean, and we went to places that American musicians have never been to. We got on the bus in New York and metaphorically got off the bus on the West Coast, and then we came back again. And so we went to places where a great many Americans don't do what we we done. We were very uh, uh, we, uh, we went to Victorville, California, which is where uh, the Roy Rogers Museum is. You can see where uh, you can see the the uh, the action where the join is. So because Don was very much into cowboys, but these were proper long tours with a a bus that uh, we made our own, and we had a lot of fun. And we uh, Don taught me to sing, believe it or not. So he taught me to sing the the songs he wanted to sing. He said, "Come, on, what's your favorite doo-wop song?" 
So I said, what, what's your name? And he said, right. He said, I'll teach you to sing that. So he, we, we, all of us on the bus started learning What's Your Name, which is a, a I mean, it's not, it's a doo-wop song, but it's not one that many people know. I was run over recently. I, there is a reason for me saying this. Found my way to the hospital. I, I needed a, a new hip. They, mine was completely smashed. Uh, so they, within a day, day of getting knocked over, they were fitting me with a new hip. And I woke up from it and I looked at these people uh, who were looking at me in, you know, after the operation, I assumed. And I thought, I wonder who these people are. Is this how it ends? Are these people going to take me across the wide river and I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to be where you eventually end up? And I called for my wife who wasn't there. So anyway, eventually I realized I wasn't dead and they took me to uh, my bed. And eventually the nurse came round and she said, do you know Don McLean? And I said, what? She said, do you know Don McLean? I said, yeah, I've played with him for a couple of years. Why do you ask? And she said, you were singing Don McLean songs all the way through the procedure. And I thought, I don't think Don would be very happy. <laughs> so you can give yourself away. I mean, I've, I don't think I've ever sang any of Don's songs, but I always enjoyed playing them. He, uh, he knew how to write a good song. And I was always disappointed that Vincent didn't have any drums on it. I thought I could have made a really good job of this. <laughs> the heavy version. So bye bye, Miss American Pie. Drove my Chevy to the levee, but the levee was dry. Them good old boys are drinking whiskey and rye, singing, This'll be the day that I die. This'll be the day that I die. Did you write the book of I'm 
And the three men I admire most The Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost Why they caught the last train for the coast The day the music died They were singing, sing it for me now Years after you, you played with Don, you, you joined forces with the Kinks. Um, mm. Some of the material that released in that period is really holds up to the, the stuff in the 60s. One of my favourites being one of Dave's tracks, Living on a Thin Line. Oh, yes, yeah. Yeah, so how, how did you hook up with the Kinks? Well, Jim was playing bass with the Kinks, and Dave was looking for a drummer for the first album. And maybe it was Chosen, chosen People. Yeah. He was looking for a drummer. And Jim suggested me, so I turned up and did the first album. And so uh, Dave and I now knew each other. Well, Dave knew what I was capable of. And somehow I was doing a a gig with Jim at a local pub in Finchley. We had a band called GB Blues Company, and it was uh, predicated on this guy called um, Mike Cotton. Mike Cotton was a trumpet player from the the, the Dixieland jazz days. So he was in it, and a lot of his his pals, the horn section, were in it as well. And we had a great, I mean, it was very musical, really, really musical. And uh, if I was away, another drummer would do it. And if Jim was away, another bass player would do it. And and it was, it was you know, everybody was, was almost replaceable. And we had one singer who wasn't replaceable. That was Root Jackson. And we, anyway, I was, we were playing this gig in Finchley and I looked out into the audience and I thought, that looks like Ray Davies. There was so much to play in this band that I didn't get a chance to do anything other than concentrate on what the music was doing. And at the end of it, Ray came over and said, that sounded great, what are you up to now? I said, well, what have you got? And he said, well, we're, we're, I'm doing another album. He said, um, I'd like you to play on it. I said, great, uh, where? And he said, uh, it would be at Conk. And uh, then he said, uh, I said, well, hang on a minute, what about Mick? He said, oh, Mick's not doing this one. I said, okay, and that was that. So I, uh, I was duly brought in to make the album, and the album went on for quite some time. <clears throat> and at the end of it, I, somebody offered me a tour. I'm not sure who it was. It might have been Hank Marvin. It was something like that. And I, I phoned Ray. I said, Ray, are you finished with me in the studio? Because um, I, I, I've got this this new thing to do. And he said, you can't do anything else. You're in the kinks. And I said, 
I am. He said, yeah, come along and we'll, we'll, have, a, we'll have a beer. So I got on the train to, uh, to Hornsey, got off, and Ray and I went for a drink, and I was in the band. And he said, oh, by the way, we're, re we're rehearsing tomorrow. <laughs>
So we rehearsed on the first day. He said, oh, because we're off to America. And so all of this was complete news to me. You know, I, I had no idea. So we, uh, we rehearsed and that was the first day's rehearsal. And he said, and we came back the next day and did another day's rehearsal. The second day had completely, the songs were all the same, but the endings and beginnings were different. Yeah. So um, I said, Ray, the, we didn't do this ending yesterday. I was scribbling everything down as fast as I could. And he said, no, no, we don't always do the same beginnings and endings. <laughs> so it was that, uh, it was at that juncture that the penny dropped and I suddenly realized um, this was not a drunken man's gig. You know, you could, you had to keep up with Ray and you had to know where he was going. If you were very fortunate, the first, um, the first song on the list, which was supposed to be Do It Again, it would be Do It Again, but it didn't have to be. And you only knew which song was coming by the way you counted it in. So that I suddenly realized this is the greatest gig I've ever had because I don't know what's coming next. And uh, it's really on your toes. And uh, anyway, Ray, uh, next thing I know, we're touring America. I was a little concerned about how everybody was going to accept me. And I didn't, not necessarily in the band, because I knew everybody in the band, but uh, the fans and all that, you know, because Mick was beloved. He really was. He was, a, he was good old Mick. And anyway, in the end, yeah. I, I was accepted, which was, which was wonderful. And uh, that gave rise to my favorite thing to play. And halfway through Lola, there could be 50,000. There could be an awful lot of people out there. And Ray would stop the band and I would keep going with boom, cha, ba boom, cha. And the audience would have the lights on them and would have their hands above their heads and be clapping with me. And I suddenly realized I was in charge of these people. And if I, it's not difficult to actually change the beat just a little bit. So their beat has to change with you. And, you know, so you have you've got all these thousands of ha hands over your head, over their heads, and mm. I'm witnessing this, and I can, I can change how those hands move. I mean, it was, I, I once went to Nuremberg uh, and went to Zeppelinplatz, which is where Hitler used to do his, um, his big things. And I stood on the dais, and I realized I was getting the same feeling that I got from playing Lola. So, and, and also something about the kinks that had never happened to me before. And I played with a lot of upmarket people. I suddenly, I realized, hey, I'm playing with Ray and Dave. Uh, now, not only am I playing with Ray and Dave, I'm playing You Really Got Me with, you, with Ray and Dave. And the secret of You Really Got Me is I had a, yeah. a call from their producer. And he said, uh, what are you doing on Friday? Now, I didn't know Shell Tell Me, but I knew that, that it was him because was it was an American voice. He said, well, we've got this uh, session at IBC on Friday. Can you make it? I said, yeah. He didn't tell me who it was with. We were doing a week in variety with Adam Faith and the roulettes, and we were doing something at Wimbledon, the Wimbledon Theatre. So I was booked for the session. And so that everybody knew what I was doing, I, I told Adam Faith that I was, uh, I was doing this session. And, uh, but no, not to worry, I'd be there in time for the matinee, all this sort of thing on the Friday. He said, you can't do it. Anyway, so I was forbidden to do it. And it turned out that that was You Really Got Me. So I didn't play on You Really Got Me and uh, Bobby Graham did. So um, there are a few of those that happened to uh, White A Shade Of Pale. I never played on it because I was doing something else. I got a call and we, we, did, we had toured with the Paramounts, 
who became Procol Harum. And they were backing Sandy Shaw at the time, who we had uh, discovered, if you like. I didn't play on white a shade of pale. So all these things have, have happened in my life. And uh, so I get a little bit concerned about saying blessed, but I have been blessed. And uh, certainly as far as, um, as my career was concerned, from having mastered the washboard, which nobody ever does. Well, maybe they do in America, but we were just making a racket. Within five years, I was playing at a Royal Variety performance with Adam Faith. Now that is just ridiculous. And, but, and it sounds crazy, but this is what happened. And certainly my part of North London uh, with um, Chaz Hodges and a great many others and uh, Mike Berry, everybody made it, everybody did. And everybody made records. And, uh, and so that was our beginning. in the club down in no Soho where you drink champagne it tastes just like a cherry cola see you with it yeah. she walked up to me and she asked me to dance I asked her her name and in the background voice she said Lola hello
in terms of our final track, I, I thought it'd be fitting to pick the final Kinks single, Scattered. That song as well has got more of a reflected mm. nature and I think it also represents kind of death and going back into the ground and, All right. and, and that sort of stuff as well. Yes. Of course, Ray has never written an unthoughtful song. You know, he's a very thoughtful guy. And uh, every now and again, we do get together and have a cup of coffee or something, and as indeed do Dave and I. Uh, so it's a, it's, we're still ongoing, but yeah. I mean, not not quite in the same way that Russell and I are going. You know, we will. Or Dave lives in in America, so he's not easy to catch. Do you think you'll you play with Ray and Dave again? Um, I'd like to think so. I mean, that we always every any everybody who's been in the Kinks plays at the convention, but. It depends how, whether we're allowed to do it. How we, whether we're gung ho and say we're going to do it anyway, and hope nothing's going to happen. That bit's irrelevant because it's whether or not the pub will will allow it to happen. I guess you can focus on on your new books and and getting those finished and yeah. um, hopefully getting them out there. Yes, I mean it's it's a labour of love, but equally as we, we we said earlier, I want these to come out because they. It's it's sharing what I know, and uh, about about music and drumming and going around the world, which of course we we've talked about. And uh, hopefully, well, I mean, uh, I can't believe that I have enough information in my head to do another autobiography, but there is, there really is. <laughs> and uh, how we get on, I don't know. I'd like to fit, I'd like the uh, travelogues to come out, simply because I think traveling the world is very interesting. I've done lots and lots with my wife which is interesting because mostly with a rock and roll band you you just are with the the guys and the crew and that's it but certainly um now um, i've done lots with my wife i've done it was like being in a rock and roll band because we've done a month traveling around in kerala right on a bus we got to the very bottom we had a, a our accommodation was a mud hut except inside the mud hut was a holiday inn room I mean, it really was ridiculous. And so I went to supper the first night we got there. We were there for, I think we were there for four or five days and went for supper and they had an orchestra. Well, an orchestra in, uh, in India turns out to be a guy playing tablas and a guy, play, and a guy playing a flute. But they were absolutely fantastic. And I really liked it and woke up the next morning and found that I could get tabla lessons if I wanted. Well, in the 60s, everybody went to tabla, every drummer went to tabla lessons. I couldn't do it and neither could any of my, my drummer mates. You know, we're, we're, used, we're not used to, you know, playing with fingers. We're used to, that's what we're used to. Uh, anyway, so I went and this, this guy who had been the tabla player the night before took me through some of the bits and I, uh, I realized halfway through that I couldn't, I still couldn't play after 40 years. I still couldn't play tablets. I said, oh, Benny, let's have a cup of coffee. I wanted to release the pressure. And we then talked about things that he couldn't play. So I was on the, like Bossa Nova, for instance, and Hambone and all those things, those important things to us, but not to, uh, not to uh, an Indian uh, drummer. So anyway, we, we sat down with our coffee. And he said, do you know Paul McCartney? And I said, yeah, we've crossed, you know, we've touched elbows. He said, I said, why? He said, he came here. He said, what for? 
He said, I don't know. He brought a load of people with him and they had a hut like you've got and they, they made music. So he, was, he didn't realize that they were making demos. So I said, did you play with him? And he said, yeah. I said, what did you play? He said, I don't know. I said, um, did you play Beatles songs? And he said, I don't know any Beatles songs. <laughs> oh, so this is a part of India that's untouched by the Beatles, which is strange. So I, I decided I needed to have, this was a strand for, the, for one of the books, for Have You Come Far? And so I decided I'd go and see the general manager, see what he could tell me about McCartney. And I said, when he came, did you know who he was? And they, he said, no. I said, so were you surprised? He said, I didn't know anything. He said, we went until Mr. McCartney went into the, the restaurant and everybody stood up and clapped. And I thought, that's just what McCartney wouldn't want. You know, he'd just want to be an ordinary guy. We chatted about McCartney to the general manager and I, I said, so did he play any Beatles songs? And the, the general manager said, I don't know any Beatles songs. And I said, uh, so what was he here for? He said, I don't know. And he, anyway, he went on, a, there are lots of uh, rivers around the place. And he went on a river and with, with this, it's like having a, a hotel on a, on, a, on a twin hull. And, you know, it's just you and a, a cook, and somebody sailing it. And it's great. It's really good fun and very interesting. So um, I, I said, so when, when Mr. McCartney left, how did, he, how did he leave here? He said, he drove. I said, what, you mean he drove the car? And he said, yeah. But because driving in India is just crazy. The people are mad. And, but they've got, they've got blessed lives. You know, they seem to get away with absolutely appalling driving, you know. And I said, so McCartney? I said, so I haven't seen him since, but I've got to say chapeau to him when I meet him next and say, <laughs> I can't believe you drove a car in India. Because nobody does. It's, it's just crazy. It's been an absolute joy and pleasure to talk to you, Bob. So much great music, so many stories. I really enjoyed banging on. And hopefully I can get, get hold of your, your forthcoming oh, books as well. Because if there is half as good a read as banging on, they'll, they'll be brilliant to read. So thank you. Well, Crash Bang Wallop is the next one. And that's uh, about, uh, well, that's the one about growing up as a drummer, I went to drum lessons. No, I didn't. I tried to go to drum lessons. And uh, I guess I was about 14, maybe 13. And uh, the guy, I went to this guy's house and he said, show, you, show me what you've got, sort of, as whatever that phrase would have been then. So I went ding, 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 ding. Do you stop? He said, I said, why? He said, we don't do that. I said, why don't you do that? He said, we do, this is how we do it. And uh, you like, uh, he wanted to teach me how to be a dance band drummer, well, which was the last thing that I wanted to do. You know, Lonnie Donegan had told us uh, had taken us in another direction, and we weren't coming back. And so the Beatles and everybody else, the Searchers, we all got it from Lonnie Donegan. Thanks again. It's uh, been a, a real pleasure, pleasurable morning talking to you, and uh, wish you all the best. Okie doke. Well, it's nice talking to you. Hope you have enough oh, there, enough. and uh, we'll talk yes, again. Okay. Bye bye. Like a seed that is sown All the children are scattered By a breeze that is blown Now the crops are all scattered We are talking
are some of us are balmy and battered And the fields where we gathered Are overgrown in weeds and in tatters Through it all we were scattered To the fields we are scattered From the day we are born To grow wild and sleep rough Till from the earth we are sown And the soul that is free Can live on eternally And the spirit can live on Though it's scattered in the world beyond And I've been out of my mind Ever since you've been gone for listening to the strange brew podcast if you do like the show please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online it's 10 years since i started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time 
All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you. Thank you.